visiting with us. That's what we're doing verse by verse. And we reach this morning a very serious portion indeed. All scripture is worthy of serious time and study. And the same is true of our passage this morning. Yet I know of no more graphic warnings to Christians, to the believer than that which is found here. And so let's continue in our worship and read what he has to say to us in his timing this morning and from his holy, inerrant, sufficient and authoritative word. Mark chapter 9 verses 42 to 50 is where we find ourselves this morning. Last week we looked at the dealings with the twelve as they were discussing on the way what they had been arguing really was that which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom and Jesus begins to deal with them and you see there in verse 38 which is where I want to begin reading John chimes in with this type of deflecting pride about this elitist pride that they are the only group John chapter 9 verse 38 John said to Jesus teacher we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you give us. As Ian prayed earlier, unhindered, safe for now. Lord, would you help us? We so desperately need your help. Father, we want to be a people who give you great glory. We want to be a people who don't obscure your glory. Father, we want to be a holy people. And so as we look at these words, would you please pour out grace upon grace in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I began last week by telling you about a word, about the word enemy. How pride is our greatest enemy and how the term enemy doesn't exactly conjure up the most positive thoughts in our mind. Well, this morning I, I have another one for you that is similar and it's the word sin. 
Sin is any word, any thought, any action, any motive that is in violation of what God demands. We see the entry of sin into the world in Genesis 3 where God says, do not. Eve is deceived by Satan. Satan asks that age-old satanic question that still abounds today. Has God really said? Adam then defies God, eats of the fruit, and as a result plunges the entire race into spiritual death. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We see just how serious God takes sin when you go just a little further, a couple of chapters later in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 and 7, where it says, The Lord, Yahweh, saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yahweh was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. God is serious about sin. Another way we know that God is serious about sin and that he takes it seriously is the cross, right? Where God took his only son and crushed him under the full weight of his wrath to make atonement for sin. And when it comes to sin, there is something that is attached very closely to that. It's the command and the concept of repentance. Repentance. So serious is sin that it must be repented of. We, we repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ upon conversion, but we must live, and this is what Jesus is teaching here, as disciples, we must live a life of repentance, of aggressively pursuing repentance in our life. And when it comes to repentance, if we're going to do that, we need to understand the fullest expression of repentance in Scripture. The notion of repentance is too diluted today. Churches are afraid that it'll, it'll drive people away, so they formulate entire ministries around not even mentioning it or the notion of it. The pastors shy away from mentioning it because they want seats, people in the seats, people in the pews. But repentance was the very first word of the gospel. Not only that, repentance was the very last word Christ gave to the churches in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. So repentance in both the Old Testament and the New Testament always takes on the notion of both mourning over sin and turning away from sin. In fact, the Old Testament has two words for repentance. One is to mourn, the other is to turn away. So too does the New Testament. The New Testament has several words for repentance. One of those is to mourn. The other is to turn away. And then there's that most common one that speaks about having a change of mind, metanoia. And so when we think of repentance, we must think of it in the fullest expression that it is. It's not simply just the change of mind. It involves the heart, 
the mind and the will. And such is the radical nature of sin that it requires radical repentance. A turning away in heart, in mind, in emotion and in the will. You and I need to be aggressively dealing with the sin in our lives. This week, as I studied this passage, I came under the full weight of the conviction of my own sin. And this week, particularly as I studied this passage and then having hit the ground running with that and seeking the Lord's forgiveness for that and being plowed in my own heart for that, I read each of Jonathan Edwards resolutions. Edwards penned these resolutions in his life to radically fight and deal with the sin in his life. It's incredibly helpful. Incredibly stirring to read. One of those, he said, resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight against my sin. And to be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires a holy zeal against sin. And we'll see that in our text as we go along this morning. When it comes to sin and when it comes to repentance, we often and and very rightly focus on our own sin and the need for our own repentance. I mean, that's good. We read in Scripture to pay close attention to ourselves and to ensure that there is no sin in ourselves. And that is important and that is necessary. That is a must. And yet what Jesus says here in our opening verse in verse 42 is a call to consider how our sin impacts others. And to be very careful not to have our sin impact others. So as we look at this, I have, can you believe it, some headings for you to hang your notes and thoughts on. I want to give you those right up in verses 42 to 50 of Mark chapter 9, we'll see number one, a severe caution in verse 42. Number two, we'll see a serious commitment in verses 43 to 48. And last, we'll see a significant cleansing in verses 49 through 50. And so let's dive right into the text of Scripture, verse 42, heading number one, a severe caution. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. By way of context here, Jesus is still in Peter's house. He still has that kid on his knee. He's still dealing with the 12. And as they sit there, having just been caught out, you recall from last week, in their uncrucified lust for preeminence and their, and their selfish ambition, you'll recall in verses 37 and 41, where Jesus is going to, when Jesus is saying to be great, to be great we're called to serve all. And when we serve all, we're actually serving Christ. And that it doesn't go unnoticed in verses 47 and 41. So what he's teaching there is to be kind to others is to be kind to Christ. And to help others is to help his body. 
Well, now in verse 42, Jesus transitions from helping others to hurting others. And he offers up a severe, the most graphic caution and warning. I mean, I want to read it one more time, such as its gravity and its enormity. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with having with a heavy millstone around his neck had been cast into the sea. Jesus is saying there, in such a graphic and shocking way, you would be better off dead. Simply put, than to lead another believer into sin. A millstone was this very large, round stone that would sit in this giant dish of sorts, which would be pulled around and around by a donkey. As the stone went around, as the donkey went around, it would crush the grain in the sand. And so this is a severe and sober warning that such is God's disdain for sin, that if you act in such a way that you cause another believer to stumble and trip into sin, it would be better that you died a horrific death of drowning. Jesus is saying to the twelve and most certainly each and every one of us here that follow Jesus, that sin is serious and leading others into sin is something you and I do not want to be doing because just like when you help another believer, you help the body of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, whatever you do to one of these, you do to me. Just like when you help, we're reminded here from these verses that you can also hurt another believer. We're reminded here from this verse, are we not, that God is zealous for his children. I mean, think about your own children for a moment. If someone was to harm them or influence them negatively in any way, in a sinful way, as parents, we are filled with a jealousy and a zeal, are we not? Well, the same is said of God, and we see that here. When you hurt another believer by leading them into sin, you hurt Christ and his body. By virtue that you cause one of his to fall into sin. If we're going to avoid such a thing, if we're going to heed the severe caution that this is, we need to know some ways in which we do that today. It was quite the journey in the study this week. It's, this is quite heavy. We need to know some ways in which we do that today so as to not do that today. And I want to break it down into kind of four groups. Each does overlap somewhat, but I trust this helps. We need to take heed of this. We don't want to receive the consequences, whether in this life or the next, when God will deal with the believer who leads another believer into sin. We don't want to be failing to listen to our Lord who says, if you cause another believer to fall into sin, it would be better you died by drowning. Dr. MacArthur and other commentators were very helpful here, but I want to break it up into four groups. First group, parents in the home. 
as parents. We have teens who are believers. We have those who we pray that will be believers. And as parents, we can lead our children into sin by allowing them to watch things they shouldn't watch, listen to things they shouldn't listen to, and use things they shouldn't use. Now, I'm not saying that movies and music and technology is bad per se, but there are homes with parents that have no filter on and volumes of content that just floods through unfiltered teenagers and children and young adults being led into sin, falling into sin, parents in the home. You see, under our roof, therefore under our care and thereby under our responsibility, our young ones can, when there is unrestrained viewing and unrestrained listening, easily fall into sin. And that's our fault as parents. That's our fault for being slack and our fault for being lazy. And it would be better. Jesus is saying that a millstone is tied around our neck and we die a drowning, horrific death. Don't allow your children, whatever age, to be exposed by lack of involvement on your end to content that would cause them to sin. That's number one and two. That's watching and listening. Now on to number three, using. I can remember being asked to give a message one night to parents about the use of social media. And so I did that and it went well, I was told. Yet there was one thing that absolutely struck me. It was this unawareness on the parents' end and to the absolute seductive nature of some of the apps that are available on phones these days. And because of their unawareness, which is really a nice way of saying ignorance, perhaps of the fear of coming down too strong and hindering the relationship between the child, the teens are then freely able to use these apps like Snapchat and others to fan into flame the lusts of the flesh. And sure, the teens are responsible for their own actions and will be held accountable by God for that. But Jesus is not speaking to that right here. He's saying that we must not allow anything, particularly in the case of a type of passivity on our end, to cause the one in our home to stumble. And so for us as parents, we need to be mindful about being not being absent-minded. Be proactive, we must be, in ensuring that our home and its contents and what is going on is not a stumbling block to our children. This obviously includes the way we as parents act before the watching eyes of our children. That we... Grieve the Lord when we sin against one another in the eyes of our children. It shouldn't be so. Our conduct leads them. Second group is pastors in the pulpit. 
And I believe that pastors the world over face this very reality here of Jesus' words because pastors in the pulpit can cause others to stumble by teaching false doctrine. A failure to teach people how to know God as revealed as He has revealed Himself in the Word of God. A failure to preach the full counsel of God, but instead teaching you how to get rich. And teaching you falsehood makes you the instrument that leads others to live contrary to how God wants them to live. And therefore you have caused them to stumble into the greatest sin, that is to live contrary to what God demands. So pastors in the pulpit. And the third group there is really elders before the people or pastors before the people. This is a sobering reality. In that part of avoiding being a stumbling block to others, part of that is to be a good example. So for elders, when they make poor decisions or respond poorly or fail to act accordingly, the reality is that they can cause others to stumble into sin. This doesn't mean that if you agree, disagree with your elders, or they make you upset, it means that when elders and leaders of this church fail to set a good example before the people, we can cause another to fall into sin. As they take our bad example and imitate it. Sobering reality here. We have at times as elders let you down. We have and must always model what it means to seek your forgiveness when we do. And elders must always be on guard against setting a bad example which can lead others into sin. The fourth and final group, the people in the church. That is the people of God, all of us. How can we as believers cause others to stumble into sin? Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, determine to not put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. You see, as Christians, we have freedom to do certain things. There is liberty. But we must be careful not allow to allow that freedom or that liberty to cause another to stumble. And alcohol is certainly a talking point here. And rightly so. The difference between drinking and drunkenness is a very fine line. And for a youngster to observe an older person person drinking, it can quickly become, well, it's okay that they do it, but without the maturity and the restraint, the young person drinks and then stumbles into the sin of drunkenness. And we've just led them into sin. We have liberty, but we must be very careful. With someone older who may have had a history of heavy drinking, but now they have turned away from that drink. It would be utter foolishness to exercise your liberty and your freedom in front of them. We need to be careful with alcohol. We can be too loose with that. In Luke chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him 
through whom they come. Another way we can cause another believer to sin, to stumble into sin, I really believe is by worldliness. By worldliness. Some professing Christians are literally no different from the world, it appears. You live like the world, you laugh at the things the world laughs at, which are often the very things that Jesus died for. A Christian that is just oozing worldliness lives for the things the world lives for often and therefore to associate with you means to be led into the ways of the world and more often than that because bad company corrupts good morals it means you'll then pass on the attitudes the ways the affections the actions of the world and then you'll lead others into sin another way that you and I can be leading other believers into sin is by bending the rules. We want to live holy lives before one another and and the watching world. But when you and I fail to do that by saying things like to our spouses or to our business partners that intimate that we're fine to dodge our GST or fudge our tax returns or run our business in a way that is somewhat deceitful to the government in whatever way that it be, when your spouse or your business partner thinks, well, he's a Christian, he's a mature example, he reads his Bible, he chokes on, he needs water. When we think those things, we just think, well, it must be okay if he does it. And before you know it, you join, they join you in your sin of dishonest business practices and you've just led them into sin. Young man or young woman dating each other. If you inflame the lust of your girlfriend or boyfriend... To fulfill your selfish desires. If you lead him or her into some type of heavy petting, heavy petting or promiscuous acts, it would have been better for you to sink in the sea, Jesus said. Now with each of these examples and countless others, it would be better to die a horrific death and do any of those things. But there's one last way that I think we can cause others to stumble and it's this. A failure to live a life of joy and thankfulness and gratitude. You say, well, you're saying if I'm not smiling everywhere that I go, I might lead others into sin? No. What I mean is that as those who are redeemed and forgiven, there should be, as we have our satisfaction in Christ, a residing and resounding joy that marks our life. That causes us to be free from an ongoing sullenness and an ongoing ingratitude and a deep abiding visible bitterness that marks our life. Think about it. What a stumbling block it is to another believer. Particularly those looking to you as an example. When you profess to be redeemed by Christ, yet don't possess the chief hallmark 
that Christ gave, residing joy. That joy that controls and kills this disposition of sullenness and ingratitude and bitterness. We can cause other people to stumble in that way. This is heavy stuff. And so Jesus is giving a severe warning here against entangling others in sin. And next, in verses 43 to 48, he offers up words against entangling ourselves in sin. Heading number two, a serious commitment. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. Here's a call to repentance for the twelve. Here's a call to repentance for each and every one of us. Here is a radical call to a serious commitment to deal with the sin in your life. Are you beginning to see what Jesus is doing here? He's he's calling the twelve and calling us not to be self-serving believers, but sacrificial believers who are holy. The high cost of discipleship is not to be lazy and apathetic. It is to be holy and zealous to be holy. Jesus is teaching them here, instead of being self-focused and wanting to be great in the eyes of man, Jesus is calling them to want to strive to be great in the eyes of God by being humble servants that are holy. Jesus transitions here in verses 43 to 48 from the previous caution to be mindful about endangering others to be mindful to endangering self. And that is the remedy to not lead others into sin is to deal with our own sin. And that's how you prevent others doing that. You deal aggressively with your own sin. Now, by these words... If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and your foot and your eye. Jesus is purposely exaggerating, obviously, right? To display the severity of the situation. It's an obvious overstatement in order to make a point. Jesus is using hyperbole. But here, even his hyperbole, his exaggeration is not enough to convey the horrors and the reality of an eternal hell. Now, we are, of course, not meant to take him literally here and dismember ourselves of of a hand and a foot and an eye. Jesus is not teaching sanctification by amputation. Okay? But the metaphors that he is using and the point that he's making, the metaphors of hands and feet and eyes are idioms to illustrate things. What you do, that's your hand. Where you go, that's your foot. What you watch, what you look at, that's your eye. And so if entering a bar causes you to drink, don't go in. If entering a restaurant causes you to overeat in a gluttonous way, don't go there. If opening your laptop in your room causes you to look at pornography... Get that laptop out of the room and into an open space. 
But understand this, it isn't necessarily the bar's fault that you get drunk or the restaurant's fault that you overeat. It isn't the laptop's fault that you look at pornography. It's your heart's fault. And Jesus knows that as well. What Jesus is saying here is that sin is so deadly and so serious and that when you have sin in your life, you'll inevitably lead others to sin in their lives. And so we must be aggressively attacking anything and everything that may bring about a temptation to sin. It's your heart's fault, but we've got to be aggressive with the things that bring about temptation. At Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, while we were there, I led an on-campus Bible study for people who were caught in life-dominating sin. And we certainly focused on the heart. But we also focused on the things that tempt. I can remember having to give all sorts of advice to some of them, creating different routes home or different routes to work. So they wouldn't pass by and see that sign or see that bar. They needed to be seriously committed on their commute. That's what Jesus is calling for here, a serious commitment. This is about taking every measure possible. And understand this, being zealous to take every measure possible. Not sleepy, not lazy, but zealous to take every measure possible to deal with sin. Are you hacking Agag to pieces? Are you and I aggressively dealing with the sin and temptations in our life? Are you willing to go severe lengths is what Jesus is saying, to kill the sin in your life? Christ is demanding the fullest expression of repentance here from his followers. That includes you and it includes me. A willful and aggressive assault upon any temptation. If it's anything we do, cut it off. If it's anywhere we go, cut it off. If it's anything we see, cut it off. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then this is the high cost and high standard that is required of you and I. In your own strength, in our own strength, you and I cannot accomplish a single thing for God. We can't do this. And that's why it's so wonderful. As indwelt with the Spirit of God, as those on the receiving end and of abundance of grace of God, we must be relying on God's grace and the power of the Spirit of God as we immerse ourselves in the Word of God. When we do that and live a Spirit-filled life, we can then lay aside that sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us as we fix our eyes on Jesus. In our own strength, we can do nothing. But by the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we can lay aside these The alternative Jesus gives us is living separated from God in eternal hell. The reality of hell that Jesus is making very clear here by repeating it over and over is that it makes the warnings have weight. 
Jesus is warning the twelve of the reality of hell in order to stir in them greater holiness. As a reminder to those who live in sin, being slaves to sin, will enter a place of unquenchable fire and agonizing punishment. And so here with the twelve still in master class with their teacher, who just caught them arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Jesus gives them the severe caution about not causing others to fall into sin. And now he's just called them to have serious commitment to be hacking off sin in their own life, in our own life. And Jesus now adds the last few words of his call to the twelve. And to every single one of us to be humble and holy disciples. He does that in verses 49 and 50. Interesting words here. Many, many, many different views of what's going on here and what this means. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, then what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Very interesting. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that by being my disciple and by following me and taking up your own cross and by striving for greatness in the kingdom, by serving others and by living so as to not cause another to be stumble into sin and by aggressively attacking the sin in your own life, Jesus is saying, by doing all of that, you will burn so brightly in a dark and crooked world that persecution and difficulty will come your way. That is the fire that he's talking about in verse 49. When you pay the high cost and live to the high standard and are truly satisfied in Jesus and live a holy life, you will be salted and peppered with fire as the world's enemies as as the flaming arrows of the enemy and persecution come upon you and difficulty arrives everyone will be salted with fire the context being everyone who believes he's talking to the disciples here everyone will be salted with fire In the start of verse 50, he says, salt is good. What is he talking about there? To be striving after holiness is good. And to be seeking to be distinct from the world. You are the salt of the earth is good. Repenting of all known sin and Striving hard after Jesus, that is the salt. Salt is good, Jesus is saying. And so that even when the fire of persecution and hardships and suffering press in, he says, have salt in yourselves. What's he saying? That when difficulty pushes in from this side, the fire... The salt needs to push in from this side. You and I need to respond well. You and I need to respond 
holy in the difficulties and the fires of life. Living life is in the midst of that difficulty, not causing another to stumble. Jesus then asks in verse 50, this is very hard to interpret, if the salt becomes unsalty, how, what will you make it salty again? Some want to say that this is, is a rhetorical question in the sense that it can't be. I don't know about that. He says, have salt in yourselves. If you don't live a holy life and you're bound up in sin, have salt in yourselves. Get salt. Get holy. In this mention of salt, Jesus is calling for there to be a clear distinction in the lives of the twelve and the lives of each and every one who follows him. A clear distinction from the ways of the world, a world filled with sugar. We must be salt. And so here Jesus is calling the twelve to get rid of sin. He's calling you and I to get rid of sin, to repent of sin, to not cause others to fall into sin. Because look, when you and I do, look at the end of verse 50. You can be at peace with one another. Peace. We long for peace with one another in estranged relationships. Will you respond well when difficulty comes? You'll have peace. Strive to be holy. You'll have peace. Be humble. You'll have peace. That's what he's saying. What's the solution to schism and division and selfish ambition in the life of the twelve and each and every one of us? It's to live a life of pursuing holiness by radically dealing with sin. But there is another aspect that I want to show you. Notice the focus after each of the mention there in verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And if, in, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to stumble, plug it out. Notice the focus there is always accompanied by the mention of the life to come. Look there. It is better for you to enter into life. Verse 43. It is better for you to enter into life. Verse 47 tells you what this life is. For it is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God. That's how we must live, with eternity in view. That's the true essence of what it means to live holy and live out this high cost of discipleship and avoiding leading others into sin. Get your eyes off yourself and get them on to eternity. Jonathan Edwards, in his striving after holiness, said, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. So that 
wherever he went. And whatever he did. And whatever he saw. Was always viewed in the light of the life to come. That's it. I have two questions as we close. Two questions that I was confronted with this week that I heard. And two questions that I asked myself. And now two questions that I ask you. Number one, what are you pursuing? What are you pursuing? An earthly ease that doesn't seek to deal with sin? Or to live a life in light of the life to come and being consumed to grow in holiness? We need to be driven and determined to bring God glory. Number two, what are you harboring? What are you harboring? What is there in your life that is leading others into sin that you haven't cut off? What are you harboring? What sin is there in your life? God tells us that if I harbor iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's the lesson. That's the high cost of discipleship. That's heavy stuff. You might sit here this morning having not yet become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And all this talk about stumbling others into sin and dealing with your own sin is not a reality to you. What you need to do is humble yourself And realize that there is an eternal, unquenchable hell that awaits you. That if you remain in your rejection, hell has no exits and heaven has no entry. But that if you this day turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who hung upon a cross, you'll be forgiven. And you'll then begin to walk this high cost that we are so desirous to walk. To be humble and to be holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who gives us immense grace, that you show us immense mercy. Would you please forgive us, please forgive me, Lord, for the ways in which we have sinned against you, sinned against others, caused others to stumble into sin. And would you help us, Lord, to lay aside all the rubbish and the trivial where we just allow Satan to always win. Would you help us to fix our eyes upon your precious son, Jesus? To confess all known sin, knowing that when we do, we receive an abundance of mercy. Would you help us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.